I would invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Job. The book of Job. This morning, God willing, the Lord will enable, I would like to speak on Job's journey in the fear of God. Job's journey in the fear of God. Look with me then in Job chapter 1. We're going to read the first nine verses of the first chapter of Job. Follow along in your Bible, if you would please, as I read from mine. Verse 1 of Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, this Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job fear God for nothing? Well, I want us to think about that this morning, and I trust that God will be pleased to help us see and understand what this is really all about. So you bow with me, if you would, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it's such a joy to know that we can come together like this on a Lord's Day and gather to worship and we know that You are present as You promised to be. And Lord, that we can approach the throne, Your throne of grace and mercy. And we can do so boldly, not because of who we are, what we've done or ever could do, but Lord, only because of Christ our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer, what He has done and who He is. And so we come and we bow before You this Lord's day in His name. 
and ask that if it please you, Lord, that you might make your presence known right here in our midst together as we would worship you and as we would sit and be still and desire to hear your voice through the scripture. Lord, just draw us near to you and teach us this morning the things you'd have us to learn, to know, and to understand. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of this time. Grant your blessing now is my prayer in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Well, I bet uh, it was probably, oh, anyway, 42 years ago, maybe 43 years ago now, when uh, I can remember sitting back in my bedroom as we lived in Mountain View, Missouri. Justin and Jessica were still little kids at the time. But I had, uh, and I don't even remember where I got them, but I, I, I got some cassette tapes. Uh, and I listened there in the bedroom where I had my little study. And uh, I listened to this series of messages on the fear of God. And I can remember thinking as I was listening to these tapes, although I grew up in church and was there every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, probably nearly every Wednesday night, everything that the church... uh, uh, was doing. Uh, my family was there. But in all of that time, I was thinking back, I don't ever remember hearing a single solitary message about the fear of God. You don't hear it too often today either, do you? Not very often. I can think of a few, but only a few men who I've heard preach on the subject of the fear of God, godly fear. But I think it's important. As a matter of fact, I know it's important. Since 40-some years ago when I listened to those messages, the subject of fearing God has not been far from the thoughts of my heart. And I can tell you without any question or doubt in my mind, the times that that particular subject, the fear of God, as it's revealed in the Scripture to us, I can tell you that the times that my thoughts drifted away from that and lost sight of that, that's when I found myself once again yielding to the desires of the flesh. Listening to the wrong voices. Following the wrong patterns, the wrong examples. The fear of God is important. I hope that we'll see that as we consider this subject together this morning. Perhaps we should begin by defining what we mean and what God's Word means when it makes reference to the fear of God. There are actually two, uh, two ways in which fear is used in the Bible primarily. And uh, some of this I've shared with you before, those of you who have Uh, heard me preach for a number of years, you'll recall that uh, I often make reference to the fear of God because of the impact that it had upon my life so many years ago and the impact that I believe God intends for it to have upon all of our lives as His children. But as we define fear according to the way we find it in the Scripture, uh, Webster 
says, it's a painful emotion. Fear is a painful emotion excited by an expectation of evil or the apprehension of impending danger. This is one way that the fear of God, the word fear is used in the Bible. And, and we see it often, especially in the Old Testament. Isaac Watts said this type of fear is an uneasiness of mind upon the thought of future evil likely to befall us. So that's one way that the word fear is used in the Scripture. But in the regenerate, and only, I might add, in the regenerate, that is, those who have been quickened by the Spirit of God, made alive from uh, being dead in trespasses and sins, in the regenerate, and those who are born again, born of God, the fear of God is a holy awe or reverence of God and His Word, which springs from a just or right view and real love of the divine character, leading the subjects of it to hate and shun a holy, uh, everything that can offend such a holy being as God is. And it inclines them to aim after perfect obedience to what God says. John Murray. John Murray says this type of fear, the fear of God, is actually the soul of godliness. The soul of godliness. And by that he meant it's the very life of piety and, or reverence for God and His Word. Well, the subject of godly fear is not a minor, nor is it an insignificant theme in the Word of God. And yet, although there are, from what I recall, perhaps between 150 and 175 direct references in the Scripture to the fear of God, uh, especially that fear of God in the regenerate, in those who are born of God. Uh, sadly, even though that be the case, uh, it seems to be mostly forgotten, if not just outright ignored in our day and time, and has been for many years, I fear. Well, I could call your attention to several different Old Testament passages uh, that... Uh, make reference to the fear of God, uh, such as in our text right here. But there are so many, actually, so many. Uh, perhaps you recall that Solomon, as he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, concluded that book by saying, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What's he say? Fear God and keep His commandments. And so I could share with you many, many Old Testament passages but because so many people, when they uh, have their attention called to the subject of fearing God, they think, well, that's just some Old Testament thing. That's just something that, that uh, God spoke of and the prophets spoke of and, and Israel referred to all the way back in the Old Testament. But it's not just in the Old Testament, is it? Let me just take a few minutes to have you turn with me to just a few, perhaps four New Testament passages that I think clearly speak to the subject that we're considering here this morning as we 
want to go on and look at Job's journey in the fear of God. But let's look in, in the New Testament, if we could, first of all. Turn all the way back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and the 17th verse. Now I'm reading, as uh, some of you may quickly recognize from uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, some of these verses, especially uh, some of the ones that I'm sharing with you this morning, I have memorized uh, in the King James that I grew up with. And so uh, if you see me quoting from the King James, you'll know why. But in verse 17 of 1 Peter 1, uh, Peter says, And if you... If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, in the King James, it says, pass the time of your sojourn here in fear. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. In other words, as long as God is pleased to leave us in this life on the earth, you pass such time fearing God. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what Peter said. Well, turn with me now back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. Donald, would you step in there, please? Get me a little bit of water. 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. In verse 1. The apostle had just in the concluding portion of chapter 6, spoken of God making some great promises to His people. And it's based upon these promises that He goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 7, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Well, let's go back now to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Chapter 12 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, we want to look at verse 28. Here the apostle says, Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful or thankful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He'd just been speaking about things that are going to get shaken again. Things that are going to get shaken. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe or in fear. In fear. One other reference back in Philippians. The second chapter. And here again, I could, these are just, these are just a few, just a few references in the New Testament. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, here the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Well, the fear of God is a predominant theme in the Word of God. 
We find it all throughout from Genesis all the way through to the end of our Bibles, to the end of God's Word, the book of Revelation. We find the subject of fearing God a predominant theme all throughout the Scripture. Why is it that the fear of God is so important? Why is it so important? Well, let me share one reason for its importance with you as we get underway here. If we look in Job chapter 1, where our text was here this morning, we'll find that uh, the fear of God caused Job to turn away from evil. Now, the King James says uh, to eschew evil, but it means to turn away from evil. We see it there in verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, uh, indicating that turning away from evil was the result of the fear of God that was in his heart. We see it again in verse 8, where the Lord was speaking to Satan and said, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then if we were to move on into the second chapter in the third verse, we see the same thing again, as once again, the Lord is speaking to Satan. Have you considered my servant, Job, one who fears God and turns away from evil? Now, I'm thinking about Job's journey in the fear of God. Uh, I think his journey can be summarized uh, in the fear of God. His journey can be summarized by looking at just a few examples or statements that Job himself made throughout the book of Job. Now, obviously, we don't begin to have time to look at all of the book of Job here this morning, but I do want to point out to you that there are some statements all throughout the book of Job made by Job himself that uh, kind of summarize Job's journey in the fear of God. Let's take a look at five of these statements that Job made, if we could, this morning. Uh, as we listen to Job himself. Back in the first chapter of Job, uh, where we are this morning for our text, uh, you'll find in verse 9, the last verse of our text, that uh, when God had spoken to Satan and asked him if he had considered Job his servant and being a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil... Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? And then, of course, Satan went on to say, uh, insinuating that that's the reason that Job uh, actually feared God because of what God had uh, done for him uh, as far as uh, uh, putting a hedge about him and his house and all that he had, blessing the work of his hands, his possessions that were increased in the land. But then Satan went on to say in verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. Well, is that so? No, we just really find that Satan uh, is nothing more than a tool in God's hands for proving how important the fear of God is in someone's life and what it will actually do in that individual. And so we find Job's response uh, to uh, uh, what the Lord allowed Satan to do 
as far as taking all of these things away from Job that he had insinuated caused Job to fear God. Well, if you'll look with me in verses 20 through 22, we see the way Job responded to this. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Worship. Didn't curse God at all, did he? Didn't curse God at all. But he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead of cursing God, he's blessing God. How could he do such a thing? Having lost his family, having lost his wealth, having lost the great herds of livestock that he had, and being left basically alone. He wasn't alone, was he? Wasn't alone at all. And all of this, verse 22 tells us, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Well, we read just a little bit further here in the book of Job in chapter 2, and we see that uh, once again Satan came uh, before the Lord, and uh, the Lord again asked him to consider his servant Job, a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. And he told Satan he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Well, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So Satan went out in the presence of the Lord, and and all of you are perhaps familiar with the fact that he struck Job with some terrible, terrible... Affliction boils all over his body so much as there wasn't a place where he could find any relief at all from the terrible boils that he suffered and all. And Job actually was just using a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Well, (laughs) even Job's wife seemed to join in league with Satan you'll notice. And she says in verse uh, uh, 9 to, to, to Job, said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Just curse God and die. Just curse God and die. Oh, but listen to Job's response as the fear of God was remaining in his heart and in his thoughts. He said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil in all of this? Job did not sin with his lips. Hmm. Well, let's go on. Let's go on. If we were to go on, if we had time to read the following portion of Scripture all the way up uh, till we get to Job chapter 13. Uh, we would find that Job's friends, if we can really call them that, they were so-called friends, weren't they? Job's friends came to comfort him and to counsel him. When in reality what they were doing was just accusing Job, pointing out to Job the fact 
They thought that, well, Job, don't you know? Don't you see? Can't you understand that all of this has come upon you is because of your rebellion against God, because of your disobedience to God, because of your sinning against God? Some friends, huh? Some comforters. Oh, but listen at this point to Job's response to his friends in verse 15 of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 15. Hearing the things that his friends were saying, his response was this, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Whereas I learned this verse, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Trust him. Well, Job's friends weren't through yet, were they? They continued with the same approach uh, to Job that they had taken up to this point. And, and we see that uh, even, even though they continued for some time, to bring these accusations against Job, we find that Job was still holding fast to that integrity uh, that was in his heart because of the fear of God in his heart. Look at verse 20 through 27 of chapter 19 of Job. Job 19, verse 23 through 27. Here Job says, Oh, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with a pen, iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Job is saying, let this, let this be something you know is in my heart. Planted in my heart. And what is it? I know, Job said, that my Redeemer lives. All these friends of Job, Job could very well have said to them, yes, yes, I'm sinful. Yes, I've disobeyed God. Yes, I've rebelled against Him. Yes, I've, I've said things I ought not to say. I've done things I ought not to do, but this I know. My Redeemer lives. That one who bore my sin and died for it in my place. He lives. And once again will stand upon the earth. Job went on to say, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom shall I see for myself? And my eyes shall behold, and not another. Yes, I know that my Redeemer lives. And because of my Redeemer, and because He lives, I live. And I'll see Him face to face. I'll behold Him face to face. And as John the Apostle would later say, when we see Him, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. That was the hope. That was the hope that was in Job's heart. Why was it there? Because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God. Well, one more reference let me point out to you if I could. Job 
following this portion of the book of Job there in chapter 19, Job himself began uh, to complain somewhat and uh, to seek to justify himself uh, before the Lord. And the Lord himself responds to Job. He answers Job. Would you look with me back here in, uh, or maybe about chapter 40, I believe it is, of Job? Where we find, chapter 38 actually, the Lord begins to answer Job. And he begins to answer him by reminding Job of who he, God, is. And as Job is reminded of who God is, he also is reminded of who he is and what he's like. And so we find that once Job is reminded that God is the creator and he's just the creature, owing God for everything, for everything, then we find Job making one more statement in response to this, and it's found in the last chapter of Job. Job chapter 42. Look with me, first of all, verses 1 through 4. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. (laughs) Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And so Job says to the Lord, Hear, hear I, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then Job says to the Lord, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What brought Job to this? One thing. The fear of God in his heart. The fear of God in his heart. Well, in this, this is the posture that we must all have before God, isn't it? Like that of Job. The very journey that God took Job through in fearing him is a journey we all have to take. And so I trust that we will see this morning, if we never have before, just how important this journey really is in the fear of God. Well, let me give you a second reason why that it's essential to fear God. Uh, Along with that, first reason where we saw that God, having the fear of God in our heart, uh, causes us to turn from evil as it it did Job. And the second reason is that both Job himself and Solomon tell us that the fear of God leads to and results in wisdom. Let's look first of all at what Job says in, in Job chapter 28, verse 28. Job 28 and verse 28. My fingers are working rather slowly here this morning. 
Job 28 and verse 28. Job says, he said to a man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. It's understanding. And so we learn uh, from Job himself here as God was speaking through him that the fear of God results in wisdom. Uh, now Solomon tells us the same thing, doesn't he? Very familiar, a couple of very familiar verses in regard to uh, the fear of God. Chapter 1 of Proverbs. Chapter 1 of Proverbs and chapter 9 also of Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 7, Solomon tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, and then he said, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And by the way, that word beginning that we find in our Bible there means chief parts. Chief parts. It's like... Uh, uh, when we start school, what are the first things that we learn? What are the chief parts of education? The ABCs and the one, two, threes, right? Everything else that we learn from that point on, uh, you know, it's based upon those very basic chief parts. And that's what Solomon is telling us here about the fear of the Lord when he says it's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. And then we turn on over to chapter 9 and verse 10, and he tells us there that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. The chief parts of the beginning of wisdom. And why is that important? Wisdom makes us wise unto salvation, doesn't it? Isn't that what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15? He said, Timothy, from a child, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. What are the Scriptures? The Word of God. Can the Word of God ever be separated from God Himself? John makes that very clear in John chapter 1, doesn't he? When he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning. The Word is God. God cannot be separated from His Word, and God's Word cannot be separated from Him. And so, Paul was telling Timothy, Timothy, from a child... You've known the Scriptures. You've known the Word of God, which is able to make you wise unto salvation. And we know how important that is, don't we? For without it, we're lost and would be eternally lost were it not for the saving grace of God that's made known unto us through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. Now then, as we move on this morning uh, in our journey with Job through the fear of God, I would ask you to turn with me in the New Testament to the book of Romans, the third chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 3. The portion of Scripture that I want to call your attention to is what I often refer to as Paul painting a portrait for us of unregenerate man. And I'm sure you are somewhat familiar with this. But beginning with verse 10 of chapter 3 in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, uh, Paul writes, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, he says, is an open grave. Uh, They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace have they not known. What a picture Paul paints. What a portrait Paul paints of unregenerate man. And and begins by simply saying there's none righteous. And then he goes on to describe what unrighteousness really is and what comes from it and what is the result of it. Well, why is this? Why is this? That this is a good portrait of unregenerate man. Why are they the way they are? The answer is found in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. Well, Paul is actually quoting, the the psalmist actually quoting David when he says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If you would, look back with me to Psalm 36 real quick. Let's go back there to Psalm 36 and verse 1. The 36th Psalm, verse 1, David is speaking here. And here David says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Well, I took a closer look at this verse here in the Psalms. And in my study of this verse, I found that the most accurate and most literal translation of this verse leads us to understand that David is actually saying this. He's actually saying, the transgression of the wicked speaks to my heart. Speaks to my heart. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, David is saying, when I see the transgression, when I see the sin of the wicked, you know what it tells me? There's no fear of God before their eyes. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3. This portrait that he paints of unregenerate, lost man, wicked man, he says, this is what I see in the unrighteous, in the ungodly. And you know what it tells me? There's no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. Well, why? Why is this? Why, we need to ask this morning, do they not have the fear of God before their eyes? Why isn't it there? Well, the answer to that is found back in Jeremiah chapter 32. 32nd chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Where the prophet speaks of God's everlasting covenant of grace. Oh, and what a, what a picture we have here of what God has promised to do for those He set His love upon before the foundation of the world. But listen to this everlasting covenant of grace that, that uh, the prophet Jeremiah Uh, speaks to us about here in his prophecy 
found in this 32nd chapter of Jeremiah, verses 37 through 40. God says, Behold, I will gather them from all countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. I will give them, uh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I'll make an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me or depart from me. Just like we read there in Job, fear of God in his heart caused him to turn away from evil, to shun evil, to turn from sin. And here we find the reason why the unregenerate or the lost uh, don't have the fear of God before their eyes. Very simple reason, isn't it? The reason it's not there is because God didn't put it there. God hasn't placed it there. Well, here in Jeremiah 32, we learn that the fear of God is a very distinct blessing of God's gracious covenant or promise to His people and that He bestows upon all who are His people, those He set His love upon long before the foundation of the world. Very clearly then, the reason why the fear of God is not before the eyes of the unregenerate is that God hasn't, put, God hasn't placed it there. Uh, and isn't it interesting as we consider uh, the salvation that belongs to those who put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus, is it interesting that, that everything, everything in the salvation of a sinner depends upon what God has done, not upon what we did. Not what we did. All of grace, isn't it? All of grace, beginning to end. Uh, and so it is that the fear of God is something that God has to put in the heart. And if He doesn't, it's not there. And it won't be there. God sovereignly and graciously puts the fear of Him in the hearts of those that He has set His love upon before the foundation of the world to assure, to guarantee that they know Him. That they know Him. If we were to go back one chapter in the prophecy of Jeremiah to chapter 31, we'd find that there also Jeremiah is making reference to this everlasting covenant, this new covenant he calls it here, in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, which is the covenant of God's grace. And here in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it upon their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer 
Shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Oh, God puts His fear in the hearts of His people to assure that they will know Him. And you remember what Jesus said, knowing God really is? As Jesus prayed in the 17th chapter of John, verse 3, He said, this is life eternal. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life eternal. Knowing Him and being made alive to Him when we were dead in sin is to realize not only who He is, but what He's like. What He's like. When the fear of God is placed in the heart, you can rest assured, uh, among some other things that God puts in the heart along with that, primarily the very first thing that God puts in the heart is a right understanding, a correct biblical view of who God is and what He's like. Or to gain a biblical understanding that He's the Lord, that He's God, that He is the eternally self-existent One who always has been and always will be. He is the Creator of all things. And nothing's been created that He didn't create. And all that God created, He created out of nothing by speaking it into existence. Oh, to have the fear of God put in our hearts is to be shown who He really is. There in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 27, God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah and He says, Behold, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. The God of all flesh. Went on to indicate there's nothing too hard for Him. He who created all things. There is nothing too hard for Him. Oh. We learn this God, this Lord, this Creator of all things is an absolutely holy God and truly worthy of all our worship, truly worthy to be revered or feared and worshipped uh, in all of His sinless perfection or in all of His glory. Worthy. And like the prophet Isaiah, when we see God as God reveals Himself, when He puts His fear in our hearts. When we see God like Isaiah, uh, when we see Him in all of His holiness, we will see ourselves in our sinfulness. Remember in the sixth chapter of Isaiah? Where Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and His train, His glory, filling the temple. And about the throne of God were these angelic creatures, these seraphim, who cried out day and night to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, 
holy, holy, holy. He said, woe is me. I am undone. I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinful man. God is holy, and I'm not. God is holy and demands holiness from all of us. And none of us have it. Oh. And that brings us to the place where Job's journey took him that we read of there in the last chapter of Job, doesn't it? Where Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wherefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job, we find, feared God not as Satan suggested uh, for nothing. But Job actually feared God for everything, didn't he? He feared God for everything. He feared God for life. He feared God for forgiveness of sin and for assurance of eternity in His presence. It wasn't for nothing. When the fear of God was put in Job's heart, he came to realize that all of these things, though they be good and pleasant and we, uh, we love them like our family and, and all that God has blessed us with, all of these things are temporal. They're here today. Gone tomorrow. The Lord gives. And the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. He never changes. He never changes. And because of who He is and what He's done for me, I will live forever, for all of eternity, in His presence. Let me wrap this up by asking you a question, if I can, today. Has God put his fear in your heart? Has he? And have you begun your journey in the fear of God as Job had his journey in the fear of God? If so, then as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 earlier, uh, past the time of your sojourning here in fear. Live your life in the fear of God. Or as the apostle wrote in Hebrews, we also read earlier. Let's look at it again in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. Here the apostle says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. (laughs) Receiving the kingdom. What's that all about? Well, you can't receive the kingdom without receiving the king, can you? Impossible. There wouldn't be any kingdom if there wasn't a king. And so the kingdom we've received is all about receiving the king in our hearts and in our lives and becoming submissive to him as the Lord of our lives. All as a result of God putting his fear in our hearts. 
And so he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe or in God they fear. Oh, but before we bring this to a conclusion, look at that next verse there in Hebrews 12, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And His judgment, which He's promised, His judgment will fall in fiery indignation on all who are merely pretenders. And oh, I fear there are so many. So many in the professing church today who are nothing more than pretenders. Playing the game. Wearing the mask. That's what a hypocrite is. Somebody who wears a mask appears to be something to others that he's really not. Knowing all the right words to say. Spending perhaps their entire life thus far attending church regularly, going through the motions, knowing all the right words to say. And having no real desire ever in their heart to depart from sin, to part with sin, to leave sin, never having a godly sorrow in their heart that would lead to repentance like we saw in Job, in Job chapter 42, when he saw God. He repented of sin. God's fiery indignation is going to fall on all who are pretenders. And if we go back into the 10th chapter of Hebrews, verse 26 and 27, we read, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's just just a head knowledge, just sitting in church all the time, hearing Hearing the Word of God, that's what he means by receiving uh, the knowledge of the truth. If we go on sinning deliberately after we have received the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. Those who are at enmity with him, those who are hostile to him, those who would say we'll not have this man to reign over us. All for such, for such who find themselves in that position, there is only one place of safety for them. Only one place of refuge. And there is only one who can save sinners from their just desert. The fiery indignation of God in His judgment upon sin and the sinner. And that one, that one is the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only Jesus. There is only one mediator between God and man. 
the man, Christ Jesus. Oh, if you are and see that you are this morning nothing more than a pretender, then I would exhort you, run to Christ. Run to Jesus. And be like that publican who prayed, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. There's no other hope. No other hope. Oh, but there is hope. And there is the promise of God that all who will turn from sin and flee to Christ the Savior, there is salvation. There is no more condemnation. No more condemnation. May God be pleased to make real in your heart and your life the things that we've considered here this morning. How essential is the fear of God in the heart. May God place it in the hearts of those, our loved ones and friends, who are lost and without a Savior. Let's pray.